Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. My guest today is a man I met while I was representing Calcedon at a homeschool convention at the end of July of this year, and he had a table next to mine, and he was representing one product, a book he had written. And as a result of being given that book, I went and read it, and I found it not only interesting for its point of view... Uh, its biblical thesis, and the fact that it's simple in its perspective, but I believe will be very useful to listeners. My guest today is Daniel E. Johnson, who has written the book, Disposable, When Dating is Not Loving Your Neighbor. And so the question I'm posing today is, have relationships become disposable. Daniel, thanks for joining me. Thank you. So before we get started on actually talking about your book, I want my listeners to know a little bit about you. Uh, You're not a marriage and family counselor. You are not a sociologist. You are not an expert on pastoral or premarital counseling. So Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. So I studied uh, physics and math in college, and this book, of course, has nothing to do with those subjects. I think of myself as a scientist by profession, but I like to, to think about all sorts of topics. I'm a bit of a philosopher at heart. And so this question of relationships has been one that I've been thinking about for a long time. It actually goes back to high school, and in high school, I could see some things I did not like in the way people treated each other in terms of their dating relationships. There was a, a, a large element of manipulation in it. People were trying to, to take advantage of each other, uh, and uh, so that, that turned me off, and at the same time, I was hearing in, in church that, that uh, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So I could see that the culture, the dominant dating culture, on the one hand, was taking very seriously the maxim, all is fair in love and war, whereas I was learning something very different in church, which is that we should love God and love our neighbor. And I posed the following question to people who call themselves Christians, who were professing Christians, and I said, how can both be true? How can it be that all is fair in love and war on the one hand, and you're supposed to love your neighbor and God on the other? And I, I really didn't, did not get a good answer to that question. And so that was a, a bit concerning. I continued to think about it, and eventually I concluded that really there's there's no way to reconcile these different worldviews. Uh, they're fundamentally incompatible because one is based on selfishness and the other is based on love. 
when I got to college, I was fortunate and even privileged to associate with people and various Christian groups who really did take uh, the friendship part of relationships seriously. And it was possible to, to interact with people and, 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 and uh, women in my case, uh, and, and not be caught up in the dating game and get caught up in romantic games. It really was possible to be friends. And I thought that was very refreshing. And I continued to think about relationships over the years. And so for the last 20 years or so, actually, I've been doing writing in my spare time, putting together parts of the book and, and finally released it uh, just two years ago. So I go into the whole dating culture in some detail and deconstruct the dominant dating culture. I think I've effectively, I hope I've effectively exposed it as, as based uh, on, on selfishness uh, and that we, that we really are better off uh, as individuals and as a society if we base our, our relationships on friendship rather than selfishness. So even the whole concept of friendship has been tainted because it's not uncommon to hear someone say, well, I, I'm not really interested in a romantic relationship with this person we're just friends, as if somehow or other friendship is subordinate to romance and that somehow or other friendship isn't something that's rich and vibrant. It's more like something transient and in passing. That's right. And in fact, friendship has been subordinated to romance. And it, as I point out in the book, it has not always been that way in American culture. In the colonial era, in the late 1700s, even early 1800s, relationships were conducted in a very different way. When men and women got together, they did so in the, in the schoolhouse, in, the, in, in church. Uh, it was a community-oriented affair. They got to know each other in, in other people's, in their homes. And so that provided a different environment, uh, a be another setting, a very different setting uh, than, than what we're used to now. Uh, that started to change. And in the 1800s, that gave way to romance. Uh, there were a lot of romance novels written. And so uh, by the mid 1800s, romance was all the rage. And you saw the American vocabulary change as a result. For example, the phrase just friends that entered the American vocabulary in the mid 1800s. Before then, people didn't talk that way. And in fact, around 1800 or so, the whole idea of romance was considered a bit immature. People did not base their relationships on romance. And, and if you were a romantic, people they thought less of that actually. So friendship gave way, gave way to, to romance. And then there was another cultural shift that, that took place in the 1900s. Romance gave way to, to sex. So at each stage, uh, friendship has been uh, diminished. So you could even say that at each stage, it became less personal and more superficial because these other criteria had a lot to do with 
how other people perceived you. Yes, it became much more superficial over time. Uh, and that's unfortunate because I th the way to, to get to know someone is, is by being a friend and by experiencing someone else's friendship and love. But as I said, over time, things became more and more superficial. And so it's possible now to, to have a relationship or even to get married and really not know the other person very well, which can lead to, to very negative consequences. I can tell you, honestly, in much of the mentoring I do with women who now find themselves divorced with children and leaving a very difficult life, come to the conclusion that they made some mistakes, significant ones, when they decided that the right person to marry was the person who swept them off their feet. Right. Yeah, that's, that's the way... Uh, it's become it's come to be viewed. Now, the, the book is not really about um, marriage so much, although there is a large cultural component to it, and I do address the topic. But I would point out that the way people are practicing their premarital relationships has set the stage for the divorce divorce culture that we're we're now in. That is to say, people get married now. Well, if it doesn't work out toss that person, move on, get remarried. That's, that's marriage number two. Maybe there's marriage number three and so on. That's not unlike the way people treat uh, dating. Uh, they enter into a relationship. They take advantage of the other person. Uh, they get something out of the relationship. They use the person and then discard them, as a pastor friend of mine put it, use and discard. With that kind of practice, if you will, before marriage, it's not surprising that so many marriages end up uh, meeting the same fate. So you make, I think, like I said, it's a simple observation, but it's profound in its implications that if we take a look at the two great commandments, the first one to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then the other being like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. So when you talk about loving someone as yourself, the focus is on how you can help benefit another person rather than how they benefit you. Which is the complete opposite of the way the dating culture is practiced. And I, I should clarify, I like to use the phrase dominant dating culture simply because people date in a variety of ways. It's a very diverse culture, if you will. Uh, not everyone necessarily approaches the subject of dating with selfishness in mind. That is, I think, it's fair to say the dominant dating uh, view, though, that trying to get something out of someone, the whole point of a date is to kind of work towards something that will satisfy you, make you happy. So, but it certainly is true that in the in the dominant dating culture, as as dating is commonly practiced, certainly as it's portrayed in the in the various media, that people uh, enter into these relationships with selfishness being the driving force. The men are told that they just want one thing, and largely it's true. 
women, on the other hand, may be manipulative in their uh, approach to relationships, trying to you know, get something out of the relationship in a, in a psychological uh, way. Uh, and so people come at the, at the, at the dating culture with an, a, a personal agenda in mind, a, a selfish agenda in mind. So I think it's probably fair to say most people wouldn't view how they approach dating or finding a spouse in a selfish way. People don't tend to automatically think of themselves as being selfish. However, because of the conditioning and the expectation, much of which comes from current media, you said originally in the mid-1800s, there was the romance novel, something is filling this need to be accepted on a certain level. And whether it was the romance novel back then or modern media now, we're presented with a standard of what it means to love someone else that doesn't reflect a biblical perspective. Right. And love has become conflated with sex, with romance, with feelings, with all sorts of things that fundamentally don't have much of anything to do with love as it's explained in, in biblical terminology. So love and loving your neighbor is putting someone else, putting their interests ahead of yours, counting the other person better than yourself. And when people go into dating relationships, it's really about trying to gratify some selfish impulse or desire. And, and you see, that is really fundamentally opposed to love as articulated in the Great Commandments. It's selfishness instead of love. So people are learning to relate in the wrong way from the get-go. And unfortunately, they may never become friends. And, and so that makes that makes the marriage all, all the more difficult, obviously, if if they haven't learned to become friends at some point. And again, this isn't saying that people who start off wrong always end up wrong. People can be converted; they can be readers and followers of God's word, and so they can mature and hopefully do over time. But even if we go beyond the two great commandments and we go to the practical applications of God's 10 commandments and those things that are offshoots of it, when you practice a disposable mindset, I'm going to spend time with this person until I've now disqualified this person in some way, shape, or form, you're sort of building up as, as one person explained it to me, you know, you put a piece of masking tape or postage tape on your arm. And when you pull it off, it hurts. It hurts because it's stuck. But the more you reapply that tape, the less and less sticking power it has. So in a lot of ways, if you put the cart before the horse, if you make friendship subordinate to these other things, you're really setting yourself up for, and other people as well, for potential being defrauded or that you're stealing from someone else. You're even stealing from yourself because you're not taking the requisite steps to really evaluate, am I treating this person the way God wants me to treat this person? 
Right. And at the very least, you're setting up for a lot of disappointment. You know, people get jaded, I think, with the, with the dating culture. Uh, some people just give up completely and, and they pull back. They're almost like hermits. That's not uncommon. They just, they just want nothing to do with it. Others try to make a go of it the best they can, but are deeply wounded in the process. Within the Christian community, I think there's a tendency among some to try to Christianize, if you will, the process. And it might go like this. It's, it's okay to dispose of people as long as you do it in a nice way, for example. That's, that's problematic because they're really not taking the, the Great Commandments seriously at that point. They're just giving lip service to them. A much better way to approach this, I think, is to, to view people as, as human beings, as individuals who need to be loved and befriended. Get to know many people. Become friends with many people. Uh, and maybe a wholesome attraction develops as a result of one of those friendships and you decide to get married. But don't try to force the issue. And don't try to follow romances as if that's a reliable guide, because it's not. The romance will fade soon enough. And so you really much better building a foundation on love and friendship. And the romance may come, it may not, but do things in the right order. And all relationships have a context. You have a relationship with your mailman. He, he comes every day. He gives you your mail. You say hi. He says hi to you. You'd be hard-pressed to call it a friendship. It's an acquaintance, but it's a context. With other people, you might work with them. You might go to school with them. You might interact with them within their family or their circle. And I think that's a better indication of what someone will be like in the future when you see this person in a variety of circumstances. Do you know what this person looks like when he or she is irritated? Do you know what this person is like when he or she is disappointed? Do you know what this person is like when she or he has had a victory? In other words, this all becomes information to help you in this friendship evaluate the degree to which the friendship can go deeper. People do a good job of hiding their dirty linen, at least initially. Uh, at some point, of course, the truth will come out. It might take a lot of time, a long time for that to, to surface. But I think it's certainly much better that people get to know each other in situations and settings that are not contrived. And unfortunately, the dating scene is it's just one contrived situation after another that leads to people pretending to be someone that they're not, all sorts of superficial interactions and so forth. And, and does not, it's not conducive to meaningful, substantive friendship. And I'd have to say with the advent of social media, Instagram, being able to put pictures up of your exciting life, it becomes very easy for those who witness your life, however artificial that life is, and think that they're lacking and that they then start pursuing the things that are superficial rather than genuine. Right. And you have to wonder too, with, with, with so much social media presence these days, 
what's really the point of that? Are people trying to impress other people? Is this a genuine reflection of what's going on in their lives? I, I'm concerned that social media is becoming a vehicle, if you will, for even more superficial relationships. So we, we talked about going from friendship to the romance era to, to the sexualization of romance in the, in the 1900s. And, and now, uh, instead of having flesh and blood relationships, relationships are being carried out online, and you may, may never even meet the person. Uh, to me, this is just a continuation of the trend of getting away from real friendship. Well, even the terms on social media, friending or unfriending, first of all, I'm hard pressed to believe that anybody can have more than maybe 100 genuine friends, but you have people who have thousands of friends because what we call a friend is basically, I think, someone we recognize or someone who asked to be a friend and we said yes. So on the one hand, we're presenting an image to goodness knows who, right? Because there's no way we can keep track of them all. But very few people will put up pictures of their failures or their disappointments. So it appears that people only have happy lives and, and, and it gives a false impression of what the future holds for anybody. Yeah, and actually, that's one of the characteristics of the dominant, dominant dating culture, isn't it? That people pretend to be someone other than who they really are. Now, I can't really critique social media in any any detail because I, I honestly, I spend so little time there now myself, but I am concerned about it as, as, as a medium because I think it has, has led to a lot of superficiality, but people really need to learn to be themselves, to learn to be genuine. Now, obviously, you don't want to parade your faults around and, and start your first conversation with a lot of dirty linen, but you need to be yourself at some, you know, at some point and to learn to be honest in your, in your, and candid in your dealings with others. And that comes through, that comes with time and it comes with getting to know someone, another person as a person in real life situations, not in some sort of contrived environment. Exactly. Now, I know like 20, 30 years ago, within homeschooling and Christian circles, lots of talk. I Kiss Dating Goodbye was a book which later proved to be the person who wrote it ended up divorcing in his own marriage or courtship as opposed to dating. Instead of having a formula, methodology, or technique, I think your thesis of treating people the way you would want to be treated is a much better benchmark than anything else that someone can put together. I hope so. And as far as methodologies goes, I think that any methodology other than the one you articulated, the Great Commandments, is doomed to failure in the end, or at least not the best way to go about it. When methodologies are touted as a model for success, when, when we're promised that someone special will be found just by going through steps one, two, three, four, and so on, that's, that's really not even true to human experience, is it? Because th there's no script for getting to know someone. It's, things don't work that way. Think, think about same-gender relationships for the moment. How do you get to know 
another woman? How do I get to know another man? There's, there's no checklist involved. We, it doesn't, we don't work things out that way. Why should there be a checklist or a, set, a series of steps or a certain order to things if you're getting to know someone of the, of the opposite gender? Uh, I think to, to, to do things according to some preconceived plan doesn't, doesn't do justice to the notion of, of friendship. It's, it's not conducive to love either. You said, how do people of the same gender get to know each other? Well, how do people get to know each other in any context? If you're selling real estate, you are going to find people who are looking to purchase real estate. You still present yourself in a particular way, but according to God's commands, you're not allowed to lie. You're not allowed to misrepresent. And so if you take a look at all relationships, they all should be based on loving your neighbor as yourself. But this extra attention put to finding that right person, that one person that's right for me, almost encourages people to go from one person to another looking for that one special person. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's in some sense, it's a fool's errand, isn't it? Because you, you're never going to find a, a perfect person, right? There is no perfect spouse. The whole idea of love is love someone in spite of their shortcomings, right? When you think of, for example, God's love for us and, and Jesus' death on the cross, he, he loved us in spite of who we are, not, 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 not because we're perfect, but in, in, in spite of our, our, our sin and imperfections. And so to, to, approach, to approach the uh, marriage game or the dating game with the idea is that, well, I'm going to find that perfect person. So you see, it's never going to happen. The best you can do is, is find someone with whom you, you, you can love and, and be together as, as lifelong partners and enjoy each other's company. That's, that in itself is a tall order, mind you. Absolutely. Yeah. And you think about it, how do you know how someone today is going to be in 10 years, in 20 years? Well, I think the bigger and more important question is who are you and can you count on yourself to be faithful? Can you count on yourself that you will keep the vow better or worse and not put rose-colored glasses and say, well, I never thought it would get this bad and so I'm out of here. So the precursors to marriage should be those ways that you test yourself and other people who might be potential candidates in terms of, is there a faithfulness and obedience to God's word that commends me to them and them to me? Character is very important. But as you said, you, you don't know who you're going to be in 10 or 20 years. And so there, there is a certain risk, I think, in getting married, even if you're two people who love God and have the same goals, because people can change. They can, they can become Christians, or they might fall away or give up their faith or decide it's not so important. Lots of different outcomes, possibilities there. And yet, in marriage, you're, you're supposed to stick with that other person regardless. And I think family relationships and the family context is so important. Not only those who are blessed with brothers and sisters have eyes and ears 
that say, I- I've known you since you were little. I see you with this person. And I actually think that you are more like yourself rather than some pretense person. And then as marriage progresses and people change, as you pointed out, the support and help of a family is very important because they were the witnesses that stood there when you made this promise. And I've often joked, I really am not joking as much as I might think, but then when I've been to a wedding and I've sat there as a witness and then the people intend to divorce, I'd like a call, please, because you see, I stood there and witnessed your vow, and now you're just dissolving it. I I think there's a lot to be said for going in with your eyes open, but also understanding what the commitment is. And and that starts as you're learning who this person is. Right. Well, I'm reminded of Ben Franklin's quip. He said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage, half shut afterwards. (laughs) So, you know, you raise a point, it, it reminds me of some sad incidents. I've known uh, Christians who got married thinking, you know, this is the right one, this is God's choice, etc. You know, you can, you, you've heard that, that kind of talk before, and then they end up divorced 15, 20 years later. It's very, very sad to see that. And it does make you wonder what happened. I, I caution people for that reason against uh, assuming that they know for sure that this is God's choice for them. They may think it is, but the reality is people are getting divorced, including those who, who were convinced that it was God's will. I think people need to build a, a solid relationship based on friendship and love and you know, expect trouble uh, within limits and, and have the character to, to stick it out. Now, there was a part of your book that I found very intriguing in terms of, and you've alluded to it, going through the various ways that people got together, which led to marriage over the course of American history. And you talked about at one era that women actually had the upper hand that it was the woman who was able to control the circumstance, which would allow her not to be in compromising situations. Explain a little bit about that practice. Yes. And let me just back up before I do to this review. So in the colonial era, there was a large emphasis on family and community, getting to know each other uh, in in the schoolhouse and in 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 the commons of, of the town. Uh, that gave way then eventually to, to the romance model, if you will, of, of courtship, which in turn then gave way to a very interesting uh, model of courtship that you just alluded to called calling. And in this calling courtship model, women did in fact have the upper hand. A woman would extend a call to a potential suitor, to a man, and he would come to her house and they'd get to know each other in the, in the, in the parlor. And there were all sorts of rules and so forth about what to do, what to say, whether refreshments would be served. And it was all sort of scripted, if you will. But the, but the point is that the women had the upper hand. They would, they would take the initiative. And if, if you just showed up as a man, 
uninvited, you would be turned away, believe it or not. That, in turn, gave way to, to dating. So dating evolved, and that came on the American scene sometime around 1910 or so. And there, the men had the upper hand because they were taking the initiative. They were asking the women out. And perhaps, perhaps most importantly, they were paying for it. Now, that's significant because the men then, in some sense, at least in their minds, had a claim on the woman. So, so in other words, the women felt indebted to the men, right? The, men's, the men are paying for the, uh, the evening out. They're spending money. And now, now how does the woman make it? How does the woman make it up to the man? And so they, they felt a sort of obligation to return the favor through romantic favors or sexual favors. And that really was uh, a, a complete reversal uh, in some sense of what had been the norm just a decade before when, the, when women had the initiative. The, the, the dating as it was first practiced in turn gave way, gave way to other kinds of dating. So when dating first hit the scene, it was very common for people to have dates with different people, lots of different people. No one ever thought anything of that. Many years later, about the time of World War II, and shortly thereafter, it was very common for couples to go steady. Now on college campuses, it's not uncommon for people to get to know each other sexually before they even have a date. And in the hooking up culture, in an extreme form, couples will, will have sex and then may not even see each other again. And so at each stage in, in, in our history, our short history of a quarter of a millennium, if you will, we, we've, got, we've, we've de-emphasized friendship and uh, sex has been uh, elevated. First, romance was elevated in importance and, and now sex. But friendship and love, genuine love, have been the losers. And in the process, we've abandoned a lot of the biblical principles that would say, evaluate a person in terms of, will this man be a good provider? Will he be a good husband and father? Will this woman be a good wife and mother? And use the biblical standards for these things and not make it an impulse that people marry, that it would become a natural progression after people got to know each other. And then, of course, when the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked to be able to see the points of commonality, the points of common faith, so that it would be a very natural progression rather than a rushed one. Yeah, well, those considerations are, are, are not in, in existence on these, on these apps, if you will, where people look for partners. I mean, it's not, not even something people think about. It's a, a purely sort of animalistic uh, drive that it, that's being cultivated. It really would be much better that the people get to know each other as individuals, as friends, and, and, and give due consideration to the questions you raised throughout the course of the friendship. Exactly. Okay, once again, the book is Disposable When Dating is Not Loving Your Neighbor. Daniel, how can people get a hold of this book? It's available on Amazon, and you can get it in ebook form or the hard copy. 
And I should also mention I've, I've made it my practice to give it to pastors if, if they think that this would help them. I'm happy to send them a, a copy at, at no charge. They or anyone who wants to contact me can do so through my website, which is Dan, just like the name, D-A-N, Good Books. This is all written as one word, Dan Good, G-O-O-D, Books, B-O-O-K-S, dot com. And you can contact me through my, uh, my webpage. I'd love to, to hear from you. And I should add that at the end of every chapter, there are questions for discussion, and it might be very profitable for families to do this together, various Bible study groups, to orient people to thinking, you know, maybe there is an alternative to what we're being told is the norm. Thanks for mentioning that, because uh, I did include questions at the end of each chapter, and I, I did that so that people would start to think through these and related questions. I, I didn't want this book to be simply telling people what to believe and, and, and just, you know, take it or leave it sort of thing. Rather, I want people to start to think through for themselves how they view relationships and, and how they can learn from history, from other people's mistakes, what the Bible has to say. And I think that's a, a very important part of the learning process because, you know, for so many things that we face in life, there's no, there's not necessarily a scripted answer and people need to learn to think for themselves. So I include the questions so that particularly in a group setting, although an individual can also answer the questions for him or herself, in a group setting, people can can read a chapter together and ponder the questions and, and then in that way learn from each other and learn to think more about these issues for themselves. Very good. And one last thing. You said it took you about 20 years to kind of put this all together. You spent a lot of time thinking about it. What's next? Yeah, I, let me clarify though. So I would just kind of write snippets for, you know, for 20 years off and on. And I, it was a question of having the time to sit down and write it all out. So when, when you have a full-time job and, and a family, you don't necessarily find the time to do that. It actually proved to be a better way to do it, though, because it gave me more time to reflect and, and uh, learn as, as I did it rather than try to bang out a book all at once. On the question of dis what is disposable, it has occurred to me that this, in some sense, is a motif for our, our entire culture, isn't it? So I remember my mom used to say that we were supposed to to love people and use things, but it's just the opposite, isn't it? We 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 use people and love things, and and we really should learn to love people, and rather than dispose of them. And we see it all phases of life, right? So the elderly, for example, find themselves disposed of. Maybe parents who lose interest in, in raising their children, not wanting to spend time. Perhaps they elevate the importance of career or personal satisfaction above their children. They, they lose their children in some sense. And then, you know, we think about the unborn too and, and how, uh, how they're often dis disposed of. It's become a, a, a problem uh, at, at all phases of life. And it's sort of the 
disposing of someone really is in some sense the the ultimate act of of selfishness isn't it because you what you're saying is that this other person is is no longer of any interest or purpose or use to me therefore i move on i'm just going to do my own thing married couples will dispose of each other in in a worse case so it really is a wide ranging problem and this goes to the heart of the the culture now i'm sorry to say and it is the antithesis of how we're admonished commanded even to relate to others by loving them as ourselves and loving god we're really confronted aren't we with two two worldviews selfishness and love and that's being that's on full display in our culture so I really do think people will find your your book useful and it be a conversation starter and just a thought process on those who are eager to marry, that they should be eager to befriend other people and care for them and give to other people rather than take. And like most things done biblically, when you do things in the correct order, according to God's word, the blessings follow. Right. And as we learn to treat people with respect and with love in our premarital relationships, those habits will carry over into our marital relationships. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that there's so much divorce these days because prior to getting married, well, people are disposing of each other. And so it seems rather natural, doesn't it, just to walk away. They, they don't really learn to know what it means to, to keep someone to maintain a relationship they're learning to use and discard and dispose of and that's that's something that if we if if we could change that if we could change young folks attitudes about that i think we we would reap tremendous dividends down the road i agree and i think the word cherish is really an important one because when you cherish someone it's not necessarily a physical relationship or even an emotional relationship. In other words, you're conferring the value of someone made in the image of God. I agree. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate your work and I hope people make use of the book. Listeners, if you have any comments or questions about this particular episode or suggestions for the future, you can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to out of the question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.